Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. We all have been in the situation where we are sweating it out, hoping Santa's elves get our packages here on time. Worry no more. Our friends at Seattle Shirt Company have all of us in mind. They have an excellent selection of NFL and NBA jerseys for everyone on your list. And they are doing their part in keeping their staff employed during these tough times. Please do yours in supporting local businesses. Not only is shipping free on everything, but this week only, for all of our customers, we have an amazing promotion. 50% off all Seahawks merchandise. Seattle Shirt Company have it all. Hats, jerseys, hoodies, and more. All the stars from yesterday to today are included. From LeBron James back to Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Walter Payton, Mike Ditka, Deion Sanders, Jerry Rice, and many more. Have you seen the latest Seattle Kraken NHL gear? Just head to seattleshirt.com and enter the code BELIEVE, that's capital B-L-E-A-V, at checkout for 50% off all Seahawks merchandise. Shipping is always free. Seattle Shirt Company, helping you get ready for the holidays. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. It was neat to see you play, and it's fun to talk to you all these years later because you played with a lot of joy and you played with passion. And I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. Well, you know, I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school, trying to mimic all your moves. I think there were a lot of kids who looked at Dan Dickow and said, Dan Dickow can play at this level, I can play at this level. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, and SB Live Sports. On the Believe Podcast Network, conversations with people throughout the world of sports, typically basketball, today's fits a lot of the boxes, whether it's a player, a coach, broadcaster, an executive. This guest checks all of those. Matt Doherty played at North Carolina, coached at Kansas, at Davidson, at Notre Dame, at Carolina. He's been a broadcaster, and he's also been an executive as a commissioner of the Atlantic 10. Matt, which moniker should I use when I address you now? I I think I'm a utility infielder. I, I can play all the positions. Uh, I just have a problem starring in any one of them. So I, I, I uh, uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I guess I can't keep a job, Dan. I just, uh, you know, I'm a nomad. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think former head coach, uh, you know, former player at North Carolina, a lot of formers. Um, but you like to stay in the moment and. Right now, I'm doing some executive coaching. I've joined a group called Vistage, which is the uh, oldest and largest executive coaching organization in the world. And I do some media. I do radio, uh, you know, do some games. Uh, um, I'm part of the ACC network, uh, but the schedule's been so crazy this year. You don't know 
you know, one day if there's going to be a game scheduled and it gets canceled. So um, staying busy, you know, staying busy with a lot of different projects. Absolutely. I'm, I'm in the same way with the, the college basketball broadcasting that I do is um, you're kind of on pins and needles the night before to know if you get a games on or games canceled kind of notice. Um, but as a person who was in college basketball for, for a number of years and now you, you still look at it, but in a different light as a broadcaster, what is the most intriguing or interesting thing that you are watching these coaches and players have to deal with due to COVID? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is um, instilling your offense and defense. Um, you know, I felt when I was coaching uh, in the around 2000, late 2000, around 2007, 2008, it was really hard to implement intricate offense and defensive sets because, you know, I hate to say it, but the AAU influence, you know, there wasn't a lot of kids that really were taught. They may have been taught the fundamentals of ball handling and shooting, but they weren't taught the fundamentals of team play. So to have to teach kids how to play motion offense um, or read and react offense was a lot of work. And, and often led to a lot of frustration, especially when you had a group of young players that came in together, which I had at, at, at SMU. So I see coaches like Coach K and John Calipari, you know, the, the frustration, um, you know, even Coach Williams, you know, he's starting two freshman guards at North Carolina. And, you know, there's a play that you know that Coach Williams has been running at a secondary all the time, and the first one's a slip, pick, and roll. The big slips, and the point guard starts to dribble down to the block where he's slipping to. And you're like, what are you doing? You know, and so a lot of young players don't know how to see the game beyond going one-on-one. And I think that is the hardest thing for a coach to teach. And that's why Fran Fischella has a great line with ESPN. He says, you got to get old and stay old. And I think your alma mater, Gonzaga, has done a good job of that, although mixing in some young players. Um, you know, teams like Villanova uh, have stayed old. Carolina has gotten old. You know, they hadn't had the top five lottery picks. Um, and there's a huge advantage to that because there's less – teaching uh, early on about just how to feed the post. A lot of these guards coming into college never fed the post in their life, right? Yeah. I mean, they probably didn't play with a good post player. And all they did was put their head down and try to go to the basket. And now you're trying to feed the post and you don't know how to do that. And as simple as that sounds, you see the ball go out of bounds or get stolen in the post and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, it's frustrating. Yeah. To, to paraphrase, one of the, the first thoughts you made there was uh, kids are taught the fundamentals and the skills, but but not how to play the game. I find that so true. And when I call games, I, I see a, a skilled player that that just doesn't think the game. And that can be very frustrating for someone like myself who, who had to think the game on top of skills because I wasn't as athletic or big as some guys. I looked up a little bit of your, your path. Obviously, I know you played at UNC. 
I didn't realize you had played for a tremendous high school coach in the New York area, Bob McKillop, before he went to Davidson and has had all that success. Did that give you an advantage going into college by playing for him? Well, let's uh, first things first, Dan, I just want to put it out there in public for the first time that I made Bob McKillop what he is today. I mean, not Steph Curry, Matt <laughs> Darden at Holy Trinity High School on Long Island. Now that we have that out there, um, I was a freshman and a sophomore on some very good high school teams that Bob coached. I'm coming out with a book, by the way, in um, March called Rebound from Pain to Passion. And it's about leadership. But I talk a lot about growing up and playing for Bob and the intensity that it took to play for him. And in a park near our house where if you lost, you sat. And, and the intensity that was in those games and the, the role definition. Um, we had a big rival. Uh, Billy Donovan, uh, the Chicago Bull coach, went to a rival high school named St. Agnes. And so when I played in the Duke-Carolina rivalry, it, it, you know, people say, wow, what's that like? I say, well, it's like it's like – Holy Trinity, St. Agnes, but just a lot more people watching. And so, um, you know, there's always a fight in the stands during that game. The JV game went into overtime, and their gym was sat like 400 people, and they probably had 1,000 in there and paid off the, the fire uh, chief. Um, so the intensity was there. The fundamentals were there. You know, Bob did teach fundamental play. And I was blessed to grow up on Long Island, Dan, with great high school coaches. Um, and, 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 you know, we, I'd go to summer camps and you'd have these great coaches teaching you how to pivot. I talk about in my book that Gus Alfieri had this great camp called the American camp I went to in fourth and fifth grade had Dr. J who was playing for the New York Nets at the time come to do a, a, a clinic. I think pivoting is one of the most underrated skills that we talk about in basketball, but here's Dr. J teaching me how to pivot in, in 1974, 72, something like that. And, you know, I, I did those same pivoting drills with every team I coached. And so uh, the, the playing on Long Island, playing at the park, playing for Bob McKillop, learning from those great high school coaches definitely helped me make the transition to playing at North Carolina. And I knew, you know, I knew what I wasn't. I wasn't a good athlete. You, you self-confessed, you confessed you, you, you know, to me the same. You know, I wasn't. I had three dunks in my college career at six, eight, you know, three dunks. And so, um, you know, Michael Jordan had three dunks in the first half of his first college game. And so uh, I knew what I wasn't, but I knew what I was. And I knew coach Smith would appreciate what I could do, which was I knew how to play team basketball. I knew how to read and react to the defense. And a lot of that was growing up playing three on three, four and four in the park. You mentioned playing for Coach Williams. Uh, obviously, he's, he's passed, but you read a lot of books, a lot of uh, articles where former players touch about the impact that he had on their life, not just 
on the basketball court because everyone knows he was one of the best coaches of all time. But off the court, what was that experience like playing for one of the great coaching legends? Yeah, Dean Smith, um, you know, I don't know how there's any better coach. Like when you talk about the best coaches of all time, man, and I would put it in all sports. So, you know, Tom Landry, uh, Don Shula, um, Vince Lombardi, John Wooden, uh, you know, probably now Bill Belichick. Uh, you'd have to put Dean Smith in that category. Um, one of the most amazing stats, he was, when, when he retired, he was the all-time wins leader in college basketball. But one of the most amazing stats, Dan, is I've never heard him curse. Never heard him curse practice or a game and Roy Williams told me he never cursed on the golf course I played with coach Smith on the golf course a couple times never heard him curse and I say if you don't curse on the golf course you don't curse <laughs> so uh uh you know that's really impressive he's a truly servant leader and I reflect a lot about Dean Smith in my book rebound um about servant leadership um, when he passed away about a month later, every one of his former players got a letter with a check for $200. And the letter said, this is from coach Smith. He thanks you for all, you know, you've done for him in the program. Uh, take you, take your family out to dinner on him. Wow. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Special. Very special. I mean, just the ability to, you know, towards the end of your life, think of others and think about continuing to be able to impact somebody else in a servant leadership way, as you mentioned, uh, can definitely uh, be a lesson for anybody, whether you played for Coach Smith or whether you're reading a book uh, with experiences of coach Smith and his players. That's fantastic. Obviously everybody yeah. knows the story. You played at Carolina with some great players, uh, Sam Perkins, James Worthy, and none other than who I consider the greatest player of all time, Michael Jordan. What was it like for you to watch the last dance and seeing kind of the pinnacle of, of his career, but knowing him before he became truly Michael Jordan as a young player teammate, at Carolina? Well, it was really cool to get a behind the scenes view. Um, I was really enamored, Dan, as a former coach with how Phil Jackson managed all the noise. Um, you know, people, it's easy to say, well, Phil Jackson won championships, he had the best players. Uh, but not everyone can manage the best players. And and he did an impeccable job, so smart. You know, like, how did he – you know, as a coach, as a young coach, and probably one of my mistakes is you want to treat everyone the same. But you don't really treat everybody the same. You treat everybody with respect, and you treat everybody fairly. Jordan's like, if anybody needs time off, I'm off. Intelligence to understand – how Dennis Robinson was wired and that how Michael was wired, 
and how he needed to give Dennis that time off in the middle of the season for, for him to stay fresh. And Michael, he, he had to get Michael's approval, and Dennis had to basically ask Michael for the time off, not Phil Jackson. I just thought those, those are the things that I love study leadership. I run a leadership practice now the, the, uh, through Vistage, and, 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 and the, I have a group called the Doherty Coaching Practice. You know, those things translate to CEOs of corporations, head coaches. You know, you can't treat everybody the same. You have to treat everyone fairly and with respect. And, um, and you have to get buy-in. And so to see Michael, uh, people say, well, was Michael ever like that in practice? No, not like that, because, you know, Michael was a freshman. We had James Worthy. We had Jimmy Black. We had Sam Perkins. And we had, we had Dean Smith. And he was trying to find his way as a freshman. And then as a sophomore, he got more confidence than as a junior. Um, you know, he wasn't that, like, you know, in practice, Dean Smith ran practice, you know. Uh, in the pros, it's a little different. You got to give your stars a little bit more uh, leeway. But Michael would sit in the locker room before practice and look around and say, he'd look like a point right at you and say, I'm going to get you today. And that means he was going to dunk on you. So, so as he was tying his shoelaces and looking around the locker room, we'd all drop heads. Uh, he would then on that person and we'd all start laughing um very competitive in everything that we did together whether it be a shooting drill or video games or shooting pool one of my favorite michael jordan stories was we were on a road trip to uva and uh there was a pool table in the hotel and we were playing and uh i beat him and looked at the table, took the pool cue, threw the pool cue on the table and said, this table's not even regulation. And he walked out of the room. And so he couldn't even accept defeat in, in a game of pool. Uh, so, you know, he raises your level, you know, iron sharpens iron and he raises your level. And, you know, I, 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 I jokingly say, you know, I'm a freshman and in comes, Michael Jordan and Buzz Peterson, you know, when you play at a high level, there's a risk that you may not play. And so, you know, I jokingly say, okay, there's, and Buzz Peterson was the player of the year in the state of North Carolina ahead of Michael Jordan. So I'm looking, joking, I jokingly say, I look at Michael, I look at Buzz. I look at Michael, I look at Buzz. I say, Buzz, you're not playing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so my job was to make sure that I was prepared to show Coach Smith that I deserve to start. And, you know, that's the competitiveness of a big program. And some players are afraid of it and transfer. And some, you know, some players embrace it. And that's when you have great teams. Competitiveness is, is key to be successful in any career, in my, my opinion. After you were done playing at UNC, uh, you took a break from the game of basketball before you came back into coaching. 
how hard was it to get back into the coaching into the basketball world and start your coaching career because in a, in a matter of no time you went from Davidson to Kansas and now from Kansas you start getting head coaching opportunities uh, what what was that path like and was that an easy decision to get back into the basketball world I really didn't want to coach for some reason I don't know I didn't know why I thought myself as a player and one of the hardest days of my life, Dan, was draft day 1984 when I thought that I'd be drafted in the top three rounds. And back then they had like nine rounds. Um, and I'm, I'm giving a clinic at Campbell University in front of a large camp on draft day. And uh, there's a tap on my shoulder and it's the camp director. And in the middle of the clinic, he said, Six round Cleveland Cavaliers. And I had to fight back the tears in front of these campers because I, I, I wasn't, as, as the guys say now, I wasn't feeling Cleveland six round back then. I was, I was hoping like third round Celtics, you know? Um, and so that was a real punch in the gut. And then I went to, a couple of NBA pre-draft camps and didn't perform very well. Well, before that, and then got drafted late and then never made it. And so, you know, and I had a relationship with basketball dating back to, um, I was, you know, 10 or 12 years old. And now at 22, so let's say a 10, 12 year run, a love affair with basketball, as corny as that sounds, and now my girlfriend is telling me she no longer loves me. And so, and I was hundred percent devoted to her. And so I'm like, all right, screw you basketball. I'm going to New York. I'm going to work on wall street. I'm going to make millions of dollars and I'm going to show you. Well, after a few years, I, I dreaded working on wall street. I didn't like what I was doing. And I always dreamed about coaching and, uh, then moved to Charlotte to get in the real estate business in 89 and was doing the radio at Davidson and coaching an AAU team. And I love the coaching. I like, you know, I love playing and practice. I love the strategy. I love being around the players. Um, I love the competition. And then Davidson after my, that first year hired, fired their coach and hired Bob McKillop and Bob, as you touched on earlier, coach, so I, and we were, we were awful. We were four and 24 the first year, nine and 19, I think something like nine and 19 again. And then I was I always had a good relationship with Roy Williams when he was an assistant at North Carolina, went to Kansas, was there seven years, tried to recruit you and, uh, uh, and then went to Notre Dame. And then uh, North Carolina, I, I, in 11 years after I decided to leave, and I tell kids all the time, your, your life is nothing but a series of decisions and dealing with the consequences. So I left Wall Street, quit my job, tapped the boss on the shoulder, told him I'm out, moved to Charlotte in 1989. 11 years later, I'm the head coach at Notre Dame. So sometimes you got to take – you know, you got to take your cuts. You got to get to the plate and take your cuts. And you may strike out, but you might just hit one out of the out of the park. 
Yeah, it's phenomenal. I, I completely agree with the, the fact of betting on yourself. You know, if, if you don't bet on yourself, um, you never know what might be, uh, whether it's becoming a college coach at a high level, whether it's becoming an athlete at the highest level that you can uh, aspire to. Uh, I think those are great words to live by. For, for somebody who grew up on the, on the West Coast and basketball, the Pac-12 has been, has been good when I was growing up. Uh, they've had some down years recently. Gonzaga is obviously a stalwart program. But there's not the passion for the game like there is on the East Coast, and in particular the Duke-North Carolina rivalry. I've never seen it up front in person. Um, I've only been to Duke one time for a practice when I was with UW in the NCAA tournament. Uh, I have never been to UNC. I hope to get there at some point. For someone who's never seen it, what is that Duke-Carolina rivalry honestly like? It's, it's hard to explain. Um, you know, think Yankees, Red Sox, um, you know, but, but eight miles apart. Um, it, it all starts in recruiting. I, I, and again, I go back to my book. Uh, I talk about it in my book. I'm recruited by Duke and North Carolina. My four schools basically were Duke, North Carolina, Virginia, and Notre Dame. I land to go visit Duke at Raleigh-Durham Airport. It was a small airport at the time. The assistant from Duke is there, Bob Wenzel, to pick me up. And I see Eddie Fogler at baggage claim. He was the assistant in North Carolina picking up another recruit. I'm like, whoa. Two weeks later, I go to visit North Carolina. Eddie Fogler's meeting me at baggage claim at Raleigh-Durham Airport. And there's the Duke. There's Bob Wenzel picking up another recruit, you know, at baggage claim. I'm like, wow, this is weird. And a couple of things you realize, you're not the only guy they're recruiting. Two, the campuses must be pretty close. And they're eight miles apart. Like I, I, we play, we play my first time coaching at North Carolina, playing at Duke. Most times you travel, you stay in a hotel, you have pregame meals. A lot of the campuses in the Pac-12 are so far apart, you know, except for probably UCLA and USC. Um, but most of the campuses, you know, you don't drive to. In the ACC, you could drive to, back then especially, you know, technically you could drive to all of them, you know. Um, because the farthest was Atlanta and the farthest north was Maryland. Now, that's before the ACC blew up. But anyway, so we'd get into a pregame meal. We'd have pregame meal in Chapel Hill. And then a little later, we'd get on the bus. You know, the players could go back to their locker rooms, go back to their apartments, whatever. Then we get on the bus. It's a 17-minute bus ride from Chapel Hill to Duke. And we roll in there, get off the bus, go into the arena, play the game. And fortunately, we won. And uh, uh, there is a genuine hatred amongst the fans, but there was a genuine level of respect amongst the players and the coaches. And I think it goes back to a couple things. One, most players were recruited by both schools. Two, I do think the leadership is tremendous from Dean Smith to to uh, Mike Krzyzewski, as much as they hated and competed, 
there was a level of respect. And I do think that this goes back to the leadership I talk about all the time. After a game, I'll, I'll tell you this. We, we, we're playing my second year as a head coach at North Carolina. We're not very good. We're playing Duke at home. They've got us up 20 with about 10 minutes to go. And Coach K starts holding the ball. And I'm like, wow, he's holding the ball. So they win by like 25. So after the game, we shake hands and I say to him, Coach, thanks for holding the ball. He says to me, I've been there. Wow. So the grace, the compassion that leaders have, the respect, in spite of that, what the fans see, there's a real level of respect um, that's a two-way street. You know, Coach K started out at North Carolina, at Duke, his first three years, I was playing against those teams. They weren't very good. His third year, he loses to Wagner at home, and Tom Butters, the AD, calls him into the office, and he thinks he's going to get fired. Tom Butters gave him a 10-year extension. The rest is history. So that's what he meant. You know, hey, I've been there. And, and so he showed compassion and grace to me. And, you know, uh, I have a great deal of respect for him. A lot of former Duke players are friends of mine, whether it be Jay Billis, Tommy Amaker, um, Mike Jaminski, uh, Jim Spernarkle, or guys that are friends of mine in either the business or, you know, uh, outside of the business. Guys I like, Mark Allery, that I could have easily been teammates with. And, um, so, yeah, there's a level of respect there that you don't see in some other rivalries. But, boy, oh, boy, it's intense. A tremendous insight on that Duke-Carolina rivalry that I know is a bucket list for a lot of college basketball fans to get to watch in person at some time. Matt, I appreciate the time. It's been, it's been nice to reconnect. Uh, you mentioned recruiting me at Kansas. And just to set the record straight, there was only one, maybe two phone calls. But I do like to say that Kansas did recruit me to a certain <laughs> extent uh, back, in, back in my high school days. And things worked out for me well. Um, and it was been, it's been nice to, to talk over the years, whether when you were uh, A-10 commissioner now, with uh, your current endeavors and my current endeavors with broadcasting and SB Live. So it, last question would be, if somebody's interested in finding your book, is can they get it on Amazon or would they need to go on a, on, on a website to get it? Yeah, um, coachmattdarty.com. Coachmattdarty.com. That's my website for executive coaching. Um, I do corporate talks. Uh, and uh, we'll have my book posted up there and probably the next month uh, for uh, advanced sales. Well, I appreciate it. I look forward to checking it out. It's been one of my uh, things that I've been doing uh, throughout COVID is, is diving back into quite a few different books, whether it's leadership or basketball history books. So uh, that will be on my short list and uh, looking forward to it. But thanks again for your time and great to reconnect, Coach. Uh, always, Dan, your class act. Thank you.
The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.